What you're about to listen to is the final part of a four-part series about the Japanese samurai invasions of Korea, 1592-1598, known in Korea as the Imjin War. If you haven't listened to part one through three, we're starting the story very near the end, so I recommend that you do so. If you're all caught up, on with the show. The year 1598. The place, the devastated nation of Korea. The Japanese invasion has been defeated, but not destroyed. There is one final heartbreaking act to play out in the Imjin War. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and this is episode 23, The Imjin War Part 4, The Last Command. And today, y'all, we are finishing the story we began three weeks ago. We're going to conclude the story of the Imjin War, the samurai invasions of Korea that were one of the largest and bitterest conflicts of the 16th century. It all comes to an end today with the last battles, the last sieges, the last commands, and what it all meant. We're almost at the end. Now, since I'm not a complete jerk, I'm going to give you guys a quick recap. Now, where were we? Oh yeah, Japan had been involved in an age of civil war for almost a century when a peasant-turned-warlord named Toyotomi Hideyoshi fought his way to the top. He had come from nothing and wanted everything, so he set his sights on the invasion of China. But in 1592, Hideyoshi's Samurai Blitzkrieg hit Korea and then ran out of gas for three big reasons. The brilliance of Admiral Yi Sun-shin in the Korean Navy, the brave Korean guerrilla resistance, and the vast power of Ming China. By spring of 1593, the Japanese negotiated the truce and began to withdraw. Phase one of the war was over. But the Japanese still occupied a toehold in Korea centered around the city of Busan. When peace talks broke down, Hideyoshi launched a second invasion in 1597. The incompetence and poor character of Yi Sun-shin's replacement, Wan Gyun, got the Korean Navy nearly annihilated. But with only 13 ships and a little tactical genius, Yi Sun-shin defeated the Japanese Navy in the brilliant Battle of Myongyang, blocking their seaborne assault on Seoul. It was one of the greatest triumphs in naval history, but the Japanese were still advancing on land, and the Imjin War's last year would be its bitterest and deadliest yet. So if you remember none of that whatsoever, you've been missing the last month or so of the podcast. No sweat, it's all on the feed along with my two short rounds, giving more detail about the Japanese and Chinese armies. So if you haven't heard those, I would recommend it. If not, let's finish up the Imjin War and find out who gave... The Last Commands. If for some reason the news hasn't reached you, this is not just history, but military history. There is a lot of dark and bloody stuff going on today. Podcast is PG-13, language is clean, content is not. Especially today. Lots of talk about war crimes and some especially brutal violence, even for this podcast. Next, all my sources for the whole series will be posted on my website, so you can fact check me if you want to. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. Especially with these pronunciations, guys, I speak no ancient languages. I'm doing my best. 
All the information I'm giving you is accurate, to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. History does not repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes, it echoes. I'm going to give you a scene. A scene that has played out many times over all over the world in many different conflicts and in many different cultures. It still plays out today. And I want you to see if any of this sounds familiar. She had to take a minute. The exhausted woman sat down on a tree stump, clutching at her knees, taking a couple of deep breaths. She almost sobbed before she caught herself. Her two young children, dirty, hungry, stared back at her, eyes wide. She couldn't cry in front of them, but it was just too much, too much. The war was over, they said, but everything was gone. Their house was in ruins. The invaders had taken all their food. Her daughter was gone, so beautiful, so sweet, lost when the soldiers passed by. Her oldest son had run into the hills to join the guerrillas. Her husband had come back from the war. The war was over, he said, but he wouldn't talk about what had happened. She knew he had seen some things, maybe done some things, which was why he couldn't sleep, but he wouldn't talk about it, not even to her. She pulled herself together, stood up, grabbed her children's hands. She was the glue that held this family together. They had to get to work, planting food, mending clothes, dredging the well. There were things to do if they wanted to survive the winter. They'd get through that today and then tomorrow. She nodded and felt the tears sting her eyes. After that, well, they'd get there. This is what war does. Always. Even the cleanest wars. This could be any woman. And for instance, a nameless lost series of tribal wars from before recorded history. A woman in Greece after the Persian invasions, or in China after the Mongol invasions. A German woman in the Thirty Years' War, or a Scottish woman in the Highlands after the Forty-Five. American women in the Revolution or the darker corners of the Civil War. A Russian woman after the Nazi invasion. Or a modern woman in Syria, Afghanistan, Ethiopia, Myanmar. Throughout history, the people at the bottom are the ones who suffer the most. This is a Korean woman. This vignette is a Korean woman looking at the aftermath of the Imjin War, but it could have been any of them. I wish I had more first-hand accounts of the Imjin War from a woman's perspective. I wanted to include them. I looked for them. But, well, Korean women were not an especially liberated bunch in this period, and that wasn't their fault, but it does leave me with a lack of sources. But it's not difficult to imagine this scenario, because we've seen a thousand different examples across history of women buckling up and rebuilding society when the war is over. The end of the war doesn't mean the end of the suffering, death, or trauma that the war caused. And the Imjin War? Well, unusual brutality and sheer cruelty were part of its DNA. This is not a story with a happy, rousing ending. But it is a story with an ending and an ending that mattered to everyone from our anonymous Korean mother to the great generals, admirals, and rulers of three Asian countries. It still matters to these countries, and I think it should matter to us. Today, we will finish the story of the Imjin War. Last week, we saw why the second Japanese attack failed on the seas, and today we'll see why it failed on the land. We're going to meet a war correspondent and see the horrors of this conflict through his eyes. 
we are going to see the Japanese leave Korea for good, at least for a few centuries, and say goodbye to Toyotomi Hideyoshi and Yi Sun Shen. And we will see what effects this war had on all three countries, but especially on Korea, up to the present day. And today, I will tell you why all of this matters. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why today. And because this is an epic story, there will be breaks. These are your chance to pause, cut some onions, paint the back porch, whatever you got to do. All right, guys, it's time to drive the Japanese out, but it's not going to be easy. Cook some rice balls for the march ahead. Get your cannon unstuck from the mud. Strap on your lamellar armor. And if you have time, maybe give a little food to that refugee family on the side of the road. And let's finish the campaign. is hell. And it takes a special kind of person sometimes to look at war without visions of glory, patriotism, or pride and see war for the hell it is. And sometimes in the modern day, we call those people war correspondents. These are the people that try to transmit the war back to the people who weren't there to tell the story as it needed to be told. And we are lucky enough to have something like a war correspondent for the Imjin War. Kainen was Japanese, a Buddhist priest who came to Korea in 1597 to serve as a chaplain. Kainen was horrified and traumatized by what he witnessed in Korea, all the cruelty and casual disregard for human life, totally contrary to the teachings of the Buddha. Most Japanese accounts of the Imjin War focus on the brave samurai and their mighty deeds, down to this day. But Kainen looked at the human toll, the effects of the war on the body and soul, in a way that all the rah-rah patriotic samurai stories ignored. Kainen wrote about what he saw in a work called the Chosan Nichinichiki, Korea Day by Day. And what he saw, guys, it's rough. It's bad. This random Buddhist priest, writing four centuries ago, is our equivalent of Ernie Pyle, Joseph Galloway, Sebastian Junger, Marie Colvin. Our war correspondent, live from the front lines of the Imjin War. Toyotomi Hideyoshi's second invasion of Korea began in the summer of 1597. The daimyo had mustered a massive force, 140,000 men strong, almost as big as the first invasion. But things were different this time around. The Japanese goal in 1592 had been the invasion of China. Korea was just their way to get there. But in 1597, Hideyoshi's goal was revenge against Korea for their defiance, the wounded pride of a powerful man. The daimyo leading Hideyoshi's armies had their own objectives. Men like Kanishi Yukinaga, Kato Kiyomasa, and Shimatsu Yoshihiro were determined to either annex South Korea and expand their feudal territory, or to strip the countryside bare for profit. So you can add conquest and plunder to revenge as motives for this conflict. And all of this added up to absolute brutality towards the Korean population. Hideyoshi took the violence of 1592 and cranked it up. His soldiers were ordered to 
Mow down everyone universally, without discriminating between young and old, men and women, the clergy and the laity. High-ranking soldiers on the battlefield, that goes without saying, but also the hill folk, down to the poorest and meanest, and send the heads to Japan. That was Hideyoshi's order. Now, taking heads was nothing new. The Chinese, Japanese, and Koreans had all measured success throughout most of their ancient and early modern history by the number of heads taken in battle. They monitored their KD ratios as closely as a modern video game streamer. But number one, Hideyoshi wanted heads of not just soldiers, but civilians. And number two, he wanted deliveries. But heads are a difficult material to gift wrap, despite what the movie Seven might tell you. So the Japanese troops in Korea were given orders to take noses, to carve the noses off dead Koreans. The nose count would be the metric by which Hideyoshi counted his vengeance. And the really unsettling part of the nose count was its organization. It was bureaucratized. There were designated and appointed nose collectors who would count, register, annotate, pickle, and pack the noses in barrels to be carted back to Japan. Now think about this for a second. These ambitious, competitive samurai, all trying to get the most noses, and no one caring where they come from? You know what that means. This is clinical, organized brutality. If it wasn't genocide, it was close enough that the differences didn't matter. This would all make the campaign of 1597 and 1598 even worse than 1592. The Japanese attacked in September 1597, after the destruction of the Korean Navy at the Battle of Chilchulyang. So this is the land side to last week's naval campaigns, when the incompetent Wan Gyun got the Korean Navy wiped out in the Straits. That was the signal for the Japanese army to start their attack. The main Japanese objective was the southwestern Chola province, the only area untouched by the invasion of 1592. The Japanese armies invaded the province like black metal tentacles, some by land and some by sea. And our war correspondent, Kainan, was there, watching the invasion. I had hardly disembarked from the ship when the men were stealing things and butchering people. It was a situation of plunder, and my feelings could easily be discerned from my expression. You get the impression from a lot of Kynan's writings that he seems to have been one of the only Japanese people who saw something wrong in what was going on. Like, he's looking at all this terrible stuff happening, and the guys who were doing it are like, what, why are you looking at me like that? But anyway, Kynan wrote one short poem a day to describe what he saw in Korea. And when the Japanese invaded Chola province, which was painted red on their maps, so they called it the Red Country, Kainan wrote a poem talking about what he saw. They call this the Red Country, but black is the smoke that rises from the burning buildings. The Japanese steamroller approached its first major objective, the fortress city of Namwon. Kainan had no idea what he was about to experience. Hideyoshi's second invasion was not a surprise. Prime Minister Yu Song-yong's military reforms had focused on rebuilding the Korean army and strengthening the mountain fortresses. But Korea was still devastated from the first invasion and unable to mount really serious resistance. The Korean army was led by the hero of Hangzhou, Guan Yul, but it was too weak to stop the Japanese on its own. 
If anyone was going to stop the Japanese on land, it would have to be China. And China was ready to get in there. Emperor Wan Li had been furious when he heard of Hideyoshi's presumptions and insults. When Shifty Shen Wei Jing's deceptions, all those diplomatic shenanigans were discovered, Shifty Shen found himself minus a head. The Ming military prepared to come back and save Korea, but they wouldn't arrive fast enough to save Nam Wan. On September 23, 1597, the Japanese surrounded Nam Wan. A dozen daimyo led 70,000 men to encircle the mountainous city, which was guarded by 6,000 Chinese and Korean troops. The defenders didn't stand a chance. So we've seen a lot of sieges in this series, right? We've seen a lot of attacks on cities, and they seem to run together, don't they? Like, they all seem to like, oh, another siege, what else is new? But all these sieges had something that made them unique. They might seem similar, but every great battle of the Imjin War, and there were tons, I've glossed over or downright left out a bunch, was its own story. Busan was the first siege, the valiant but doomed resistance to the Samurai Blitzkrieg. Pyongyang was the fire siege, as 2,000 Chinese cannon battered down the walls. Hangzhou was the heroic siege, with Guan Yu's Hawacha rocket launchers and Korean women carrying rocks to the walls in their skirts. Jinju II was Hideyoshi's revenge siege, with thousands of Korean men and women throwing themselves to their deaths off the cliffs. I'm not going to go into lots of detail about the siege of Namwon, it's mostly the same story, just the way the siege happened. Let's just say the Japanese won. But what made this siege unusual was the aftermath. Because after Namwon had fallen, the Japanese killed every single person in the city, then they began cutting off noses, one by one. The siege of Namwon was the mutilation siege, and our war correspondent was there. Kainan watched the sack of the city by moonlight as the white walls of Namwon ran red with blood. He saw the Japanese hunt down fleeing women and carve their noses from their faces. He heard the crying of children as they were dragged away to be butchered. The only people to be seen were those lying dead on the ground. When I looked around the fortress at dawn the next day, I saw bodies beyond number heaped up along the roadside. The Japanese records count 3,726 noses taken at Namwon, and that was only the count from the city. As Kainan went out into the countryside, he was stunned to see dead bodies lying near the road like grains of sand. My emotions were such that I could not even glance at them. He went into local farmhouses to find noseless families embracing in death, flies covering their faces. There are things people cannot unsee. Kainan wrote his daily poem in the aftermath of Nam Wan, and this, this stays in my head, guys. This, this is something that I've been thinking about for a long time. Because to me, this sums up the trauma and the horror that war always leaves behind. Whoever sees this, out of all his days, today has become the rest of his life. Wherever the Japanese armies went, in Shola province, they left thousands of dead in their wake. They counted the noses carefully since these were their entries on the scoreboard. Then they packed them, pickled them, and sent them to Japan. 
By October, the Japanese had overrun Shola province and were approaching Seoul from the south. Not every battle for the Japanese was a victory. At one point, uh, Kato Kiyomasa, the devil general, came up against the fortress of Huawang Sansong. But that fortress was held by none other than the redcoat general, Kwok Jayu. Kato looked up at this fortress, held by Korea's legendary guerrilla leader, and said, nope, not attacking that, and went somewhere else. But the Japanese were approaching Seoul, and once again the city panicked, people fleeing in every direction. Once again, King Sanjo thought about fleeing, which is zero for two on the king defending his capital. It looked like Seoul might fall to the Japanese again, but the Chinese had come to the rescue in the nick of time. Beijing had dispatched two new commanders to take over the defense of Korea, civilian leader Yang Hao and commander-in-chief Ma Gui. Yang Hao took charge immediately. He mustered every Chinese soldier currently in Korea, around 8,000 men, and ordered Ma Gui to lead them south. The Chinese set up in an ambush position near the town of Cheeksan, close to modern-day Pyeongtaek and U.S. Army Camp Humphreys, where I served in 2018. Cheeksan was on the road to Seoul, and the two armies collided on October 16, 1597. The Japanese were caught completely by surprise. Only the sound of Chinese war music tipped them off, before armored cavalry came barreling out of the woods like a surprise party. The Battle of Cheeksan swung back and forth as both sides fed units into the fracas. The fighting was bloody and fierce, predictably, with musketeers from both sides and Chinese light artillerymen covering the battlefield in smoke. The Japanese usually did very well in open battle and they had numbers on their side, but the Chinese had learned from past mistakes. Ma Gui had a killer combo of missile-armed infantry, including musketeers, light artillery, and heavy cavalry that caused thunder to ring off the hills. The Japanese discovered that the Chinese could use their firepower just as easily in open battle as they could against a city. The outnumbered Chinese forced the Japanese back before the end of the battle. Both sides fell back and claimed victory after Cheeksan, and on the surface the battle was a draw. The Chinese had driven the Japanese back, but neither side had really defeated the other. But the ja Battle of Cheeksan brought the Japanese advance to a halt. They basically sat up and said, oh crap, the Chinese are here in force. That was fast. What do we do now? They were still arguing when they received news of the Battle of Myongyang. Yi Sunshin's magnificent victory, plus the stalemate at Cheeksan, stopped the second Japanese invasion in its tracks. Only two months in, Hideyoshi's second invasion of Japan had reached the same conclusion as the first, strangled by the Korean Navy, stopped and punched in the face by the Chinese army, and of course being pestered by Korean guerrillas who were coming out of the woodwork again. So despite all that bloodshed and murder, the Japanese had come to the end of the road again, and for the same reasons. But in all honesty, Hideyoshi doesn't seem to have been too upset by the outcome. He'd gotten his revenge, the barrels of noses stacking up in his front yard settled that score, but at this point Korea was not his biggest problem. Because Toyotomi Hideyoshi's health was in the gutter. His time was short, and he knew it. His son, Toyotomi Hideyori, was all of four years old, and Hideyoshi wanted his son to rule Japan someday. But four-year-olds are notoriously bad at things like administration, military leadership, bowel control. No, Hideyoshi was mostly concerned about events at home. 
At the moment his second invasion of Korea was failing and his armies were doing untold damage to Korea and its people, Hideyoshi had already put the Imjin War in his rearview mirror. So in November 1597, after the Japanese had been stopped at Myongnyang and Chiksan, Hideyoshi sent orders that confirmed what the Japanese were planning to do anyway. That is, call off the invasion, wrap everything up, and fall back south beyond the protection of their great coastal fortresses, the Wajou. Now the daimyo did not go quietly. The Japanese massacred and looted their way into and back out of Chola province. Kato Kiyomasa sacked the great city of Gyeongju on his way back to the coast, carrying off the city's treasures and destroying all its famous Buddhist temples. Because they were the wrong kind of Buddhists. They were Korean Buddhists. I, I guess doctrinal disputes aren't just a Christian thing. But the Japanese also carried back human plunder. Captives to be used as slave labor on the fortresses, skilled craftsmen to work on their estates back home, women to be used for you-know-what, or just random people to be sold overseas. Kainan, who was marching with Kato Kiyomasa's division, recorded what he saw live from Korea. Among the many kinds of merchants who have come over from Japan are traders and human beings who buy up men and women, young and old alike. Having tied these people together with ropes about the neck, they drive them along before them. Those who can no longer walk are made to run with prods or blows of the stick from behind. The sight of the fiends and man-devouring demons who torment sinners in hell must be like this, I thought. The daimyo fortified themselves in their wajo fortresses and then said, Okay, what now? They had invaded Korea twice, and each time they had won in the first half but lost the game. No one wanted to go for thirds. The Japanese clearly could not win the war as long as the Korean Navy and the Chinese Army stood in the way. But Hideyoshi refused to abandon his last footholds on Korean soil. So, what's the plan, chief? What are we doing here? Korea was a lost cause, no matter how many thousands of noses were shipped back to Japan. And as winter came, the dragon was awakening. The Chinese were on the march again. 1597 turned into 1598, the last year of the Imjin War. With the second invasion abandoned, with the Japanese Navy defeated, and with Hideyoshi's generals losing any hope of victory, the final phase of the Imjin War began. The Japanese still held a ring of coastal fortresses in southeast Korea called the Wajou, castles and fortifications built in the earth-packed Japanese style, some of which you can still go see in Korea today. The Chinese and Koreans would spend 1598 trying to overwhelm these final knots of Japanese resistance. The final year of the Imjin War was the Wajou War. By January 1598, the Chinese had arrived, and their first target was the Wajo of Ulsan. Another siege, right? I know, guys. But this siege, the Siege of Ulsan, was by my reckoning the most miserable combat experience of the Imjin War. Ulsan would be a trauma that everyone remembered. The Frozen Siege. And Kainen was there, reporting to us live from the Siege of Ulsan. The fortifications of Ulsan were built by thousands of forced laborers, both Korean captives and Japanese peasants brought over from the home country. 
Kainen had pity for them all and pointed out that the Japanese workers were barely treated better than the Koreans. The, the workers were executed or starved to encourage them to work. To prevent carelessness, heads are cut off, but blame is not shared equally. And to the sorrow of the peasants, it is their heads that they cut off and stick up at the crossroads. The daimyo worked their laborers, both Korean and Japanese, literally to death. They were running out of time. The massive Allied force arrived on January 28, 1598. 55,000 Chinese and Korean troops, led by Army Commissioner Yang Hao, General Ma Gui, and Korean General Guan Yu. They caught the Japanese off guard, ambushing 500 samurai and killing them in the first couple of hours of the fight, and broke through the first line of defenses. The attack was ferocious, and Ulsan was almost overwhelmed in the first few days. The Japanese were soon reeling back into one of the inner fortresses. But on January 31st, the defenders received a morale boost. The most famous and popular Japanese general in Korea, Kato Kiyomasa, came to the rescue. He fought his way through the Chinese lines with around 500 men to reinforce the garrison of Ulsan. He took charge of the defenses, and soon his banana hat and whiskers could be seen racing across the walls, his triple-bladed spear waving back and forth. The Chinese and Koreans renewed the attack with determination, since the hated demon general was now within the walls. And Kato's warrior legend encouraged the defenders to stand firm. The siege of Ulsan climbed in intensity. Kainan said, The castle was surrounded by countless troops, who were deployed in any number of rings that encircled us. There were so many of them covering the terrain, that one could no longer tell apart the plain and the hillsides. The Chinese and Koreans attacked day after day, sending thousands of troops scaling the walls and ramming down the gates, sending cannonballs and hawacha rockets and fire arrows shredding into the defenders. One of Kato Kiyomasa's bodyguards was blown in half by a cannonball, leaving only his lower body standing. The Japanese held on by the skin of their teeth. After days of costly assaults, the Chinese settled down to starve the garrison out. And this came pretty darn close to succeeding. The initial Chinese and Korean attack had overrun the Japanese food and water supplies. Kainan described the starvation and misery of the siege of Ulsan. The food situation started out bad and got worse. The Japanese ate burnt grains of rice from the fire pits. They ate paper, they ate mud, tree roots, even the dead bodies of their comrades. They had to melt snow for drinking water since even their water sources were lost to them. Many Japanese were killed outside the walls just looking for anything to eat. Then the cold was apocalyptic. It was the Korean winter. The wind howled through the broken, smoking fortress. Men suffered from frostbite and hypothermia, their hands and feet blackening and swelling until they oozed nasty fluids. The siege of Ulsan was the frozen siege. According to our war correspondent, live from the front lines of Ulsan, here and there inside the castle, at the sunny places on the walkways and at the foot of towers, with no distinction between samurai, ashigaru, or laborers, 50 men at a time may be found crumpled under the unbearable hunger, thirst, and cold. Other soldiers go on tours of inspection with their spears, and when they try to rouse men who have not moved all day by using the butt end of a spear, the ones who stay completely bent over have been frozen to death. 
Soon Kynan came to believe that he would die. They would all die, condemned for their sins in what he called a Buddha-less world. A modern war correspondent might say, a godless world. But the Japanese held. The fortress was on high elevation, too high for the heaviest Chinese guns to penetrate the walls. But Kato Kiyomasa also made some ruthless decisions as to who got to eat and who didn't. Kato reserved most of the rations and supplies not for the Ashigaru or even the samurai, but for the musket men, the most important of all the defenders. By now, the Japanese and Korea were completely dependent on gunpowder to save their fortresses. This paid off on February 19th, the last great Chinese assault. The cannons launched a massive, earth-shaking barrage, and thousands of soldiers charged through the shrieking wind to scale the walls. The very few Japanese defenders who could still fight raced to the ramparts, but these included almost all the Arquebus musketeers. Their bullets shredded one Chinese assault after another, and the Chinese were climbing over mounds of their own dead until Yang Hao finally called off the attack. The Chinese and Koreans had suffered too. Food had run short outside the walls as well as inside. And now Japanese reinforcements were approaching Ulsan, sent by all the other daimyo. Even Kanishi Yukinaga had sent troops to rescue his rival. The Allies fell back, but the retreat was disorganized, and they suffered heavy casualties in their panicked retreat back to the headquarters at Kyongju. The Japanese had held Ulsan, but they paid for it. Of the original 10,000-man garrison, less than a thousand survived, and many of them were so weak that they died after the siege was over. This wasn't a victory. Not really. A few more such victories, and they would be undone. The Japanese clung to their miserable wajo and waited for the war to be over. But Kainen's war was over. Our war correspondent went back to Japan after the siege of Ulsan, burning to tell his story. His work is one of the only Japanese accounts to tell the true story of the Imjin War. Far from the courage and glory of the mainstream narrative, the samurai valor of the even, even modern depictions in Japan, Kainan saw that war was hell, pure hell, misery and starvation and terror. It sounds like he was a little bit too honest, because the Japanese government banned the publication of the Chosen Nichinichiki, the Korea Day by Day, until the 20th century. Because it told the side of the story that Japanese elites didn't want to be told. Which is why we have to know Remember, understand the true stories behind war, not the fake propaganda versions. The true experience of the unknown soldiers. Back in Japan, thousands of noses arrived in barrels, the trophies of Hideyoshi's revenge. Each barrel his daimyo sent was, a, was received with a note from the dictator, thanking them for their splendid service in his cause. The noses were buried in a great tomb, a vast mound in Kyoto, topped by a shrine. Around 38,000 Korean noses were buried in the Great Victory Monument, which was given the name Hanazuka, Mound of Noses. Later, the Japanese decided they didn't like this name, it just didn't, it wasn't kitsch, so they gave it the incorrect name by which it is known today, the Mimizuka, Mound of Ears. The Mimizuka still stands in Japan today, a monument to the massive cruelty and brutality of the Imjin War. 
It is one of the least advertised tourist attractions in Japan. It's so obscure that you will never find it unless you know what you're looking for. The tour guides will not mention it. Every terrible trophy beneath the Mimizuka belonged to a man, woman, or child, with dreams and hopes and fears and loves, buried forever beneath this mound in Kyoto. The Imjin War dragged on, seeming like it would never end. But the end was finally coming. Because in Fushimi Castle in Kyoto, a world away from the frozen hell of Ulsan, Toyotomi Hideyoshi was dying. Welcome to 1598, the year of the dog, the last year of the Imjin War. Just a quick update on the rest of the world. King Henry IV of France ends three decades of religious war with the Edict of Nantes, granting Protestants the right to worship in France. Danish astronomer Tycho Brahe publishes his famous star chart. The earliest known opera is performed in Italy, and William Shakespeare publishes Henry IV Part One, the story of Prince Hal and his larger-than-life mentor, Falstaff. Jamestown will be founded in nine years. Europe was full of colorful personalities, events, figures, and stories, and I think we've learned that East Asia was just the same. Wild stuff was happening here as well. The stories here mattered, and the soldiers here mattered too. The Japanese musketeer, the Korean sailor, the Chinese cavalry trooper, their war had been one of the most brutal, miserable experiences in human history, an East Asian world war that proved once and for all that people went hard as hell in the 16th century. And the war would not end quietly. 1598 would see some of the war's biggest battles. We will say goodbye to our two main characters and see them give their last commands. The Imjin War was in a stalemate. Both sides stared at each other, biding their time throughout the spring and summer of 1598. The daimyo held their Wajo fortresses tenuously. Their troops were mutinous, war-weary, terrified of the Ming Chinese artillery firestorm that they knew was coming for them. None of them wanted to meet the fate of the men at Ulsan. They were waiting for Hideyoshi to admit that the Imjin War was lost, that they could no longer win. Waiting for the man who had sent them here to admit defeat and bring them home. Hideyoshi was about to admit defeat of a different type. By July 1598, he was barely able to write a letter. Temples around Japan prayed for his recovery and his wife arranged sacred dances to cure his afflictions. Hideyoshi was only 62, but he had lived a hard life. He had never been a shining pillar of health, and his days were numbered. Hideyoshi's obsession in his last days was the fate of his five-year-old son, Hideyori. He made all his daimyo swear oaths of loyalty, swear that they would serve Hideyori as they had served him. Hideyoshi was worried that things would fall apart when he was gone, and he was right to be worried. Japan was ruled by dozens of ambitious, violent men who had bowed to the most ambitious, violent man of all. When he was gone, well, it was anyone's game. Some of history's most dangerous, ruthless men versus the promises they made to a kid. Who would win? 
So Hideyoshi appointed five powerful daimyo to be his son's regents, to rule Japan in his place until he came of age. Now getting too deep into this would involve telling a whole other story, the Sengoku Jedi Age of War story that maybe I'll tell someday if this podcast runs long enough. But one of these regents was the most powerful man in Japan other than Hideyoshi, Tokugawa Ieyasu. I've mentioned this guy in every episode of the series so far, not because he's important for the Imjin War itself, but because he's important for what came after it. So Hideyoshi was like, Tokugawa, look after my boy when I'm gone. And Tokugawa said, oh, I'll look after him. But maybe his smile was a little too wide when he said that. But Hideyoshi had already given up hope of victory in the Imjin War. He asked his daimyo with pain, how could I have sent 100,000 men to Korea to become ghosts? And I would say that that's a darn good question, boss. Maybe you should have asked yourself that seven years ago. But in the end, I think Hideyoshi realized how futile it had all been. All that power, all that slaughter, and he couldn't even ensure the future of his son. Death comes for everyone, even the man who had come from nothing and reached for everything. In his final days, Hideyoshi composed a short poem. I am as the dew which falls, the dew which disappears. Even Osaka Castle is only a dream. In his last moments, Hideyoshi gave his last command to bring the boys home, to leave Korea behind, to end the war. This had already been happening. The daimyo had been quietly slipping back to Japan for months, but now they had the boss's blessing. On September 18th, 1598, Toyotomi Hideyoshi died. His death was kept a secret from the country, even the daimyo in Korea. Orders went out to start the evacuation. The Imjin War had three months to go. The Chinese and Koreans were preparing for the final offensive. They had gotten a bloody nose to the siege of Ulsan, and Yang Hao was fired for his failure to capture the fortress. But throughout 1598, almost 100,000 Ming Chinese troops arrived in Korea. They even included foreign troops from places like Burma and Vietnam. The final campaign of the Imjin War would be something like an Asian World War. Summer turned to autumn, and the final preparations were laid for the assault on the Wazhou. But Chinese scouts reported that the Japanese were getting ready to leave. By autumn 1598, the daimyo had already sent half the army home. Only around 65,000 Japanese troops were left in Korea, still holding out in the coastal forts. The three most important were the battered walls of Ulsan, still held by Banana Hat Kato Kiyomasa, Sachon under the great daimyo of Kyushu, Shimatsu Yoshihiro, and finally Sunchon under church boy Kanishi Yukinaga. And they were all packing up and pulling out Google Maps to plan their routes home. The last few weeks of the Imjin War would be a race. The Japanese weren't trying to conquer Korea anymore, now they were just trying to get home in one piece. And this was where the Chinese and Koreans had different agendas. The Chinese just wanted the Japanese gone. If that meant just letting them leave, awesome. Rescuing Korea had drained the imperial treasury, cost them tons of resources, weakened them in other areas. They needed the war to end as cheaply and as quickly as possible. The Chinese attitude was, Japanese want to leave? Great. We'll give them a freaking gift basket if it gets them out the door faster. But the Koreans 
We're not having this for a second. They had what I think was a very reasonable desire for revenge. And if anyone would make the Japanese pay, it would be Yi Sun-shin. Korea's great admiral was tired and angry after seven years of war. He had been abused, mistreated, and tortured. He had lost his comrades in the waters of Chilchul-yang, his elderly mother in the drama of his imprisonment, and his youngest son to the Japanese robbers. He was comforted by his oldest son and nephew, both of whom served on his flagship, but Yi Sun-shin channeled his grief into fury at the Japanese. They had been the cause of all this death and destruction. They didn't deserve to go home like nothing had happened. Yi Sun-shin probably never read the Bible, but I imagine the phrase, an eye for an eye, would have captured his attitude. After his miraculous victory at Myongnyang at the end of last week's episode, Yi Sun-shin got busy. And if the battle had been one miracle, his resurrection of the Korean Navy was another. By April 1598, Yi Sun-shin had rebuilt his navy to 61 warships, with another 39 under construction. A far cry from the 13 ships he had at Myongnyang, and thousands of recruits were flocking to his victorious banner. Even some new turtle ships were taking shape. Yi Sun-shin's ships were active on Korea's southern coast, keeping the Japanese at a distance, especially blockading Kanishi Yukinaga's fortress at Suncheon. Yi wanted to make sure that the man who had kick-started the Samurai Blitzkrieg did not escape justice. And in August 1598, the Chinese put a new card on the table. Throughout the Imjin War, the Korean Navy had fought the war at sea alone. Emperor Wan Li had been worried about a Japanese invasion of the Chinese coast. But with Yi Sun-shin's victory at Myongnyang and the Japanese retreat to their fortresses, the Chinese finally felt safe enough to send their own navy to help out. Admiral Chen Lin and his Chinese fleet arrived at Yi Sun-shin's base on August 17, 1598. Chen Lin was an experienced admiral, but like so many other Chinese commanders, he was a bit cocky and he tended to look down on his Korean allies. But Yi Sun-shin managed to swallow his pride and get along with the Chinese admiral. Chen Lin was so impressed by Yi's courtesy and respect that he basically let the Korean take the lead. Though the two men would butt heads sometimes, there were much worse examples of allied cooperation during the Imjin War. By October 1598, the preparations were finished. The time had come. 100,000 Chinese and even more Korean troops were marching south, and the two admirals had 148 warships ready to go. Big Bro and Little Bro marched to destroy the Wajo fortresses. It was the beginning of the end. The Wajo battles of late 1598 would focus on three critical fortresses. A large Chinese army with Korean units attached marched towards each one. Shimatsu Yoshihiro in Sachan, Kato Kiyomasa in Ulsan, and Kanishi Yukinaga in Sunshan. All these little Japanese fortresses, these tough, well-fortified Wajo castles that the Koreans and Chinese would try to capture. And the two rivals, Church Boy and Banana Hat, were here at the end, just as at the beginning. It was like rewinding a movie. Two months left in the Imjin War. Chinese General Ma Gui arrived at Ulsan with 29,000 Chinese and Korean troops in late October 1598. 
This was the same fortress that had seen such a brutal frozen battle in January and February, and Kato Kiyomasa had not been sitting around playing solitaire. The fortress was, was even stronger than before, and Magui looked at Ulsan and was like, yeah, I'm not doing that again. Plus, the Japanese are leaving anyway. What's the rush? Magui surrounded Ulsan and settled in for a second, much quieter siege than the first. This was the disappointing sequel siege. Chinese General Dong Yi Yuan led 29,000 Chinese and Koreans to surround Shimatsu Yoshihiro's fortress at Sachon. The Japanese only had around 8,000 men, but Shimatsu Yoshihiro was one of the most dangerous daimyo in Korea. His clan, the Shimatsu clan, had unified the entire island of Kyushu before they had been forced to bend the knee to Hideyoshi. Shimatsu and his brothers had traded swords with Kato Kiyomasa back in the 1580s. So this was one of those of Hideyoshi's enemies turned allies. Shimatsu watched from a tall tower, waiting for the opportunity to strike as the Chinese surrounded Sachon. Chinese cannons and rockets pummeled the walls of the Wajo, but when these failed, the attackers pulled out a weird little piece of military technology. Now, the sources do not describe this weapon well, but it was some sort of breaching device that broke the gates open with gunpowder bombs. This explodey door knocker thing broke down the gate on November 11th, 1598, and the Chinese and Koreans poured in through the broken gate. But Shimatsu had set a trap. As the massive infantry rushed through the gates, musketeers positioned around the walls poured fire into the mob, stunning and confusing them. And then, the Japanese had placed gunpowder bombs, little bitty gunpowder bombs, around the base of the walls. And when these were set off, they also caused the exploding door knocker thing to catch fire and explode. A massive conflagration that ripped into the Allies, causing them to turn and run in panic. The Japanese chased them out of the fortress, hacking them down by the score and causing the entire Allied army to flee. Shimatsu Yoshihiro had held Sachon. This was the explosion siege. The Battle of Sachon was China's worst defeat of the war, even if Shimatsu's claims of 30,000 noses taken is definitely an exaggeration. He had the Chinese dead buried in a massive mound that can still be seen outside Sachon today. Even worse, the defeat at Sachon left Ma Gui isolated at Ulsan and forced him to withdraw as well. Kato Kiyomasa had won his second siege of Ulsan, and within weeks he was closing up shop and heading south. Korea's most hated enemy, the demon general who had overseen the massacre at Jinju, would escape their vengeance. This left only church boy, Kanishi Yukinaga at Sunshan. Unlike the other two Wajo battles, the fight at Sunshan would be a combined army-navy operation. The double siege. Chinese General Liu Ting and Korean General Guan Yul led 13,000 Chinese and 10,000 Korean troops to surround the fortress on land, while Yi Sun Shin and Chen Lin led the Korean and Chinese fleets to blockade it by sea. Maybe they could combine naval bombardment and land assault and eliminate the Christian daimyo. But Kanishi Yukinaga had been the first daimyo into Korea in 1592, and he would be the last one out in 1598. He had led the Samurai Blitzkrieg to Pyongyang, withstood the Chinese firestorm there, and had been at almost every great battle. He'd been deployed to Korea for seven years, and had even given confession to a Catholic priest during the truce. 
All I can say is that must have been one heck of a confession. I imagine that priest going straight to the bar and doing Jaeger bombs after whatever that was. But Kanishi had 500 ships ready in Sunshan Harbor. As soon as he had a clear shot, Church Boy was leaving. The Chinese and Koreans assaulted the fortress at Sunshan, blasting at the walls with artillery and seizing the bridges leading into the castle. At the same time, Yi Sun Shin and Chen Lin led their ships to blockade and bombard Sunshan from the sea. The assault was, as usual, intense, another hail of cannonballs and muskets and arrows from every angle as the Chinese and Koreans bombarded the Wazhou. The Chinese and Korean warships ventured close to bombard the fortress, a rolling thunder that shook the walls of Sunshan. But Chen Lin, the Chinese admiral, had no experience in the shallow waters of the Korean coast, and when he led his ships too close to the walls, about 30 of them ran aground. The samurai saw their chance and attacked down the beach, climbing onto the beach ships and capturing 19 of them. Chen Lin and his flagship were only saved when Yi Sun Shen's ships came to the rescue, blasting the samurai away from their allies and hauling the remaining ships back into the sea. The assault on Sun Shan had failed, and the land forces decided to withdraw. Yi Sun Shen was disgusted, but the Chinese basically said, hey, it's just going to be too much effort to crack the Wazhou. We are zero for four on trying to take these places, and the Japanese have one foot out the door anyway. Why waste the men trying to capture them? Let them go. And I mean, yeah, from the Chinese perspective, this made sense. But not for Yi Sun Shen. The Japanese had ravaged his homeland for seven years. Killed, raped, mutilated, burned, devastated. They had shipped barrels of Korean noses back to Japan, taken his people as slaves, looted or destroyed the treasures and monuments of Korea. Yi had seen what they had done, and in the course of this terrible war, he had been disgraced, his mother had died, his son had been cut down like an animal. They had to pay for what they had done. One month left in the Imjin War. By December 1598, the Japanese were concentrating at Busan for the voyage home. Everyone was clear and free to leave. All the daimyo had their bags packed and their travel plans in place. All of them except one, Kanishi Yukinaga, still stuck in Sunshan, still blockaded by the combined Chinese-Korean Navy. Like a bulldog hanging onto a burglar, Yi Sun Shen would not let go. And Kanishi was panicking. Unless he could break through the blockade, he was stuck. He couldn't escape. So he slipped a message past the blockade to Shimatsu Yoshihiro's fortress at Sachon. The message basically said, dude, I need you to get Yi Sun Shen off my back. Help a brother out. When Yi Sun Shen learned that this message had passed, he knew that a rescue mission would be coming. Shimatsu Yoshihiro, the great daimyo of Kyushu, the guy who had defeated the Chinese attack on Sachon with that explosion, assembled the Japanese war fleet. 500 ships. He planned to sail west through the Straits of Noryang and break the blockade around Sunshan. But this was what Yi Sun Shen expected him to do, and the Chinese and Korean fleets moved to intercept him. These were the last days of 1598, the last hours of the Japanese occupation. Five minutes to midnight. The stage was set for the largest naval engagement and the final battle of the Imjin War. On December 16, 1598, the Japanese fleet set sail before sunrise. 
but as they left the entrance to Noryang Strait, they found the gloomy sea blocked by 148 enemy ships. Yi Sun Shen led his heavy Panok Sons and Turtle ships, the vessels that had haunted Japanese dreams for the last seven years. The Chinese war junks, with their heavy guns and the smaller fighting galleys, stood alongside them. Shimatsu had 500 ships, most of which were lighter vessels or transports, but there were many warships. So the odds are 3 to 1 in favor of the Japanese, right? Oh, oh no, 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 this is Yi Sun Shen. Those are bad odds when you're fighting Yi Sun Shen. The Chinese and Korean ships thrashed forward through the dim morning into the final battle, still before sunrise. Chen Lin led his Chinese ships into the thick of the fighting, but within minutes he was being overwhelmed. The Chinese flagship was surrounded by the Japanese, and musket fire raked across their decks. The Japanese samurai began to board, and Chen Lin's own son was injured defending his father. The flagship was surrounded on three sides by boarders. The Chinese fought back with tridents and long pikes as the Japanese closed in. The Battle of Noryang hung in the balance. Then Yi Sun Shen came to the rescue. His heavy battleships crashed into the flank of the Japanese Navy, blasting at point-blank range with their guns and ramming with their heavy hulls. The turtle ships blazed with fire and pumped smoke from their dragon heads. Yi Sun Shen stood on his command deck, shouting orders, personally shooting his bow and arrow at Japanese ships. His son Yi Ho and his nephew Yi Wan stood beside him, passing arrows, passing orders. Yi's flagship accounted for 10 Japanese ships all on its own. The Korean attack blew the Japanese apart like a tornado. Burning ships illuminated the early sunless morning, and bodies and debris littered the churning waters of Noryang Strait. Shimatsu Yoshihiro's ship capsized, and he was almost captured before being rescued by a fleeing Japanese vessel. Panicking, the Japanese broke contact and raced for the eastern end of the strait. Their musketeers fired from the remaining ships, trying to hold the pursuing allies at bay. The Koreans led the chase, crashing away with their cannons and sinking one ship after another. The Japanese navy had disintegrated. Yi Sun Shin had his final revenge. Korea's admiral roared to his men to keep rowing, to pursue, to make sure that none of the Japanese escaped. Caught up in the moment, Yi began to beat the war drum himself, setting the pace of the attack, going boom, 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 boom. And behind the pursuing Koreans, over 300 Japanese ships were sinking or captured, and 10,000 Japanese were dead. Boom. It was Yi Sun Shin's greatest triumph. Boom. The last battle of the war. Boom. The last hours of the war. Boom. And then the drumbeat stopped. Yi Sun Shin dropped the mallet, raised his hand to his chest, and collapsed to the deck. A Japanese bullet, one of the last shots fired in the war, had pierced his chest. His son and nephew rushed to his side. Now, there are multiple versions of what Yi Sun Shin said next, but I have my favorite. Because as the last minutes of the battle raged on, surrounded by his family, Yi Sun Shin gave his last command. The battle is at its height. Do not let the men know of my death. Keep beating the drum. And then, in literally the final hours of the war he had won, Yi Sun Shin died. 
His body was carried into the cabin to conceal his death from the Korean sailors, and his nephew Yi Wan kept beating the drum, tears streaming down his face, until the end of the battle. The Korean nation would go into mourning when they heard of Yi Sun Shen's death. Admiral Chen Lin was shaken by the news, sobbing over the deck, sobbing along with the rest of the Korean fleet. The Battle of Noryang was over. The Japanese fleet had suffered its final, greatest defeat of the war, a capstone on their failure to conquer Korea. The Koreans and the Chinese had won the biggest naval victory, biggest naval battle of the conflict, at the cost of Korea's greatest hero. In the meantime, Kanishi Yukonaga had made a break for it. As Yi Sun-shin was dying in battle at Noryang Strait, Church Boy slipped around the engagement and made his way back to Busan. Kanishi Yukonaga and Kato Kiyomasa took one last look at Korea, glared at each other, and set sail for home. The last Japanese ships left Korea on December 24th, Christmas Eve, 1598. Toyotomi Hideyoshi was dead. Yi Sun-shin was dead. The Japanese were gone. The Chinese went home. And when they were done grieving, the Koreans took a deep breath and started to rebuild. The Imjin War was over. So it's time for us to close the book on the Imjin War. It's time for the aftermath. None of the three countries that took part in the war came out in anything like one piece. They were all wounded, some of them mortally, by the greatest conflict of the 16th century. The Japanese came home to find their country on the brink of war. Hideyoshi's body was barely cold before the five regents were all glaring at each other. They had promised to rule in place of his son Hideyori, but those promises weren't worth the paper they had been painted on. In less than two years, all the daimyo were grabbing for their katanas again. Hideyoshi had tried to prevent this, but he was dead. What he wanted didn't really matter anymore. The daimyo split up into two factions. One faction were the Toyotomi loyalists, led by a daimyo in Ishida Mitsunari, which included most of the Korea daimyo. The other faction rallied around the other most powerful man in Japan, Tokugawa Ieyasu. And wouldn't you know it, the two great rivals of the Imjin War split down the middle. Kanishi Yukinaga stayed loyal to Hideyori, and this meant that he would side with Ishida Mitsunari. And this meant that Kato Kiyomasa was automatically on the other team, on Tokugawa's side. Church Boy on one team, Banana Hat on the other, like they had always wanted to be. It all came to a head at the Great Battle of Sekigahara in 1600, the most famous samurai battle in Japanese history. And Tokugawa won. The Hideyoshi loyalists were defeated and their leaders committed suicide, with one exception. Kanishi Yukinaga refused to commit the traditional rite of seppuku, which was always the expectation for defeated samurai. He was a Christian, and he believed that suicide was a sin. Kind of funny to me that this was the Christian belief that he held to, the hill he chose to die on, despite basically wiping his butt with the Ten Commandments throughout the Imjin War. 
So it was that Kanishi Yukinaga, the first great warlord in and out of Korea, was beheaded on November 6th, 1600. Kato Kiyomasa got all of Kanishi's land as a reward for picking the right side. Kato had always been one of Hideyoshi's loyal followers, and in the years after Sekigahara, he did his best to look after his master's son Hideyori. But Tokugawa Ieyasu was the ultimate champion of the Age of War Thunderdome, the final winner of the Japanese Civil Wars after a century and a half of slaughter, the Civil Wars only having been interrupted by the Imjin War. In 1603, Tokugawa had himself declared Shogun, the first man to hold that title in 40 years. He established a new regime at his castle of Edo, and over the next few centuries, this site, Edo Castle, would become one of Japan's great urban centers. This ushered in a new era for Japan, the Tokugawa Shogunate, the Edo period. To show how important this period was, what was once the small castle town of Edo is now called Tokyo. There was one loose end to tie up. Kato Kiyomasa died in 1611, and without his protection, Toyotomi Hideyori, Hideyoshi's son and heir, had barely any allies left. In 1615, the shogun's armies led a massive assault on Hideyori's castle at Osaka. He committed seppuku as Japanese cannons brought the walls down around him. Hideyoshi's family, the clan Toyotomi, was destroyed. As he had said in his final poem, Osaka Castle was only a dream. All that was left of Hideyoshi's ambitions were his castles, his monuments, and of course, the Mimizuka, the Mound of Ears, actually noses, his victims. To me, that was Hideyoshi's real legacy. The Tokugawa Shogunate ruled Japan for the next 250 years. One of their biggest goals was stability. According to Tokugawa Ieyasu, the Imjin War had been a disaster, a massive sink of resources and manpower that accomplished nothing and was just an extension of Hideyoshi's ego, which, fair. Tokugawa was determined not to let anything like the Imjin War happen again. Foreign invasions and interventions would be banned under his rule. In fact, any contact with the outside world was dangerous, risky, just not worth it. Tokugawa's new regime, in large part because of the defeat and disaster of the Imjin War, led Japan into two and a half centuries of isolation. The Tokugawa shoguns are famous for the fact that they closed Japan off from the outside world almost completely. Christianity was banned and harshly persecuted. One of its most famous persecutors was Kato Kiyomasa. After one battle, Kato had his samurai disembowel pregnant Christian women and cut the heads off babies because this was just how Kato Kiyomasa rolled in every single situation. Foreign trade in Japan was carefully controlled and restricted to the small seaport of Nagasaki, and Japanese subjects were forbidden to travel outside the country at all. The people were disarmed, the samurai were converted into bureaucrats. The arquebus muskets were locked away, destroyed, or turned into hunting weapons. Japan flowered into an age of isolated peace, prosperity, and stability. No more civil wars, no more daimyo, no more gunpowder battles. A quiet, isolated nation with beautiful art and culture and literature, cut off from the outside world. Until one day they weren't. One day in 1853, when American steamships under Commodore Matthew Perry appeared off the Japanese coast. 
but that's a story for another day. On the surface, it looked like China came out of the Imjin War the best. The Ming had come to the rescue of their little brother, reinforcing the principles and integrity of the tributary system. Hideyoshi had wanted to challenge the Chinese world order, the great Asian political system that had existed for centuries. But he had failed decisively. The Chinese world order had picked up the gauntlet, met his challenge, and survived. Good news for the Ming, right? Well, sorta. Historian Kenneth Swope argues that the Ming Dynasty emerged from the war stronger than ever, and that's mostly true. But the huge amount of resources that they committed to Korea were resources that weren't going elsewhere. The real threat to the Ming was to the north, the Jurchen, or later the Manchu tribes, under their brilliant leader Nurhasai. While the Chinese had been focusing their full attention on Korea, Nurhasai had been busy unifying the tribes under his leadership. So the Chinese were too distracted by Korea to concentrate on the real threat. For two decades after the Imjin War, the Ming struggled to deal with the rising power of the Manchu north of the Great Wall. In 1619, Nurhasai defeated a large army of Ming and Korean soldiers, an army led by Yang Hao, who 20 years earlier had stopped the Japanese invasion of Korea at the Battle of Chiksan. And this defeat, the Battle of Sarhu, sent the Ming Dynasty into freefall. Famines, disease, and rebellions broke out all across China, and Beijing could not handle all the problems at once. Their treasury was empty, their military was weakening, and the rebels only got stronger. In 1644, 50 years after the Imjin War, the last Ming Emperor hanged himself as rebels closed in on the capital. Within a few months, the Manchu had occupied the city. The Ming Dynasty had fallen. To add insult to injury, during Mao Zedong's Cultural Revolution in 1966, the Red Guards dug up and burned Emperor Wan Li's body in Beijing. Even the man who saved Korea couldn't rest in peace. The invaders proclaimed a new dynasty, the Qing Dynasty, a Manchu Dynasty led by the descendants of Nurhasai. The Qing emperors would rule China until 1912, almost three centuries, China's last imperial dynasty. But even if China was now ruled by a nomadic dynasty from the north, it was still China, and they still maintained the aura of authority and power that China has always held. The Chinese world order survived until, again, the white people showed up to screw up everything. The Chinese world order would meet its first real challenge, not at the hands of the Japanese, but at the hands of a different island country with dreams of empire. When the British arrived off the Chinese coast in the 19th century, ready to fight a war over drugs of all things, opium to be precise, the Chinese world order would fall. But that too is a story for another day. But if China and Japan had a bad time after the Imjin War, they were in much better shape than Korea. It has been Korea's fate to be caught between great powers, whether than in the Imjin War, the World Wars, or the Cold War. But ironically, the Joseon Dynasty of Korea would outlast both the Ming and the Toyotomi families. 
The Imjin War was the single worst thing that has ever happened to Korea, even coming out ahead of the 1950-53 Korean War. The number of Koreans killed by the Japanese easily climbs to the hundreds of thousands. Factor in deaths from disease and starvation, from exposure and deprivation, and factor in the slaves carted off to Japan, and the numbers climb to maybe 2 million. Possibly 20% of Korea's population was lost in the Imjin War. It was a horrible catastrophe, worse than any country suffered in World War II. The dead were bad enough, but Korea lost more than that. Every Korean city had been at least partially destroyed, some were almost totally ruined. The wonderful science experiments of Jang Yong-sil, the water clock, the rain gauge, his astronomy tools, had been lost in the fires that destroyed Korea's cities. Their sacred Buddhist temples had been burned or pillaged. The metal movable type, the first movable type that had printed hundreds of books had been stolen and destroyed or carried off to Japan. 80% of the farmland was unworked, burned, or depopulated. Government revenues collapsed. Rebuilding was impossible. The Palace of Shining Happiness would still be a burnt-out ruin in the 19th century. Hundreds of years later, could the Koreans couldn't afford to rebuild it. What had once been a thriving, vibrant, peaceful little country, the land of the morning calm, was shattered. The Choson Kingdom of Korea never recovered from the Imjin War. It was a wound that refused to heal. The Japanese hadn't just looted goods from Korea, they had looted people. Almost 50,000 Koreans were taken to Japan in chains. These included hundreds of skilled craftsmen. Korean ceramics, Korean pottery, had been famous across Asia before the war for its high quality, and the daimyo brought back ceramic craftsmen to put them to work on their own estates. Shimatsu Yoshihiro kidnapped no fewer than 17 expert potters, and their techniques revolutionized Japanese pottery, and, by the by, sent Korean pottery manufacture into a steep decline. In Japan, the Imjin War is sometimes called the Pottery War. The Korean captives were the beginnings of a long-suffering Korean minority in Japan. Some of them left accounts of their experiences, such as Kang Hang, whose story is now published in English. He and his family were captured after the siege of Namwon. The Japanese left his young children on the shore to die, and his nephews and nieces died on the way to Japan from drowning and disease. But during Kang Hang's time in Japan, he was largely responsible for introducing them to the ideas of Neo-Confucian ideology, which greatly affected Japanese philosophy for the rest of its history. A lot of the ideas we associate with Japanese culture today, including the idea of a samurai warrior code, because as you can tell, there is nothing like a code of honor going on in Japan before this time period. All this originated with the spread of Neo-Confucian ideas from Korea. Kang Hang was allowed to come home after 1600, but some Koreans went too far to ever come home. They were sold to European slave traders in the port at Nagasaki, and carted off to China, India, Africa, or even Europe. An Italian merchant named Francesco Carletti brought at least one Korean slave back to Europe. This man, who took the name Antonio Correa, settled in Italy, where the Correa family claims descent from a Korean ancestor to this day. With the aftermath of the Imjin War still lingering in his country, Yu Song Neong sat down to write an account of what had happened. 
He criticized the practices of the Korean government, the cowardice of its senior leaders, and the divisions that had led Korea to disaster. His work, entitled The Book of Corrections, gave me like half the quotes in this series. But Yoo Sung-neong fell from power after the Imjin War was over, and his pleas for reform and his dreams of a restored Korean government fell on deaf ears. Korea was so devastated by the war that it slipped into quiet decline. The fallout of the Imjin War and the collapse of Big Brother Ming caused Korea to go into an isolation even more extreme than Japan. For Westerners in the Pacific Seas in the 19th century, Korea was a hermit kingdom, a shadow realm where shipwrecked sailors could expect execution for trespassing. If it's possible for an entire country to be traumatized by a war, Korea was. All this adds up to the fact that the Imjin War was a disaster for everybody. Both victors and vanquished were weaker, and in some cases ruined by the struggle. Hideyoshi's dynasty, the family he hoped could rule Asia, disappeared in less than a generation. The Ming dynasty was overthrown, and China was ruled by foreigners for the next two and a half centuries. Korea was almost destroyed and fell into an age of bitter darkness. So what I'm really saying here, guys, no one won this war. The Imjin War benefited nobody, and most wars don't. Millions of dead, millions of ruined lives and grieving families, the largest and bloodiest war of the 16th century, had weakened every country and ruined every dynasty that had taken part. The suffering, the glory, the fear, the anger, the triumph, and the tragedy, it had all been for nothing. But no country had suffered worse than Korea, and the story of Korea doesn't get better for a long time. When Japan emerged from its isolation and modernized in the 1860s and 1870s, the old dream of a Japanese world order was dusted off. The new Japanese regime followed in Hideyoshi's footsteps, explicitly citing his ideas and even following some of his invasion plans when they launched their own challenge against the Chinese world order in the modern era. The Sino-Japanese War of 1894 took place, like the Imjin War exactly three centuries earlier, on the territory of Korea. Another battle was fought at Pyongyang in 1894, but this time the Japanese defeated China, and in 1910 they formally annexed Korea into the Japanese Empire. And Japanese rule over Korea was just as bad as you'd expect, just as bad as the Imjin War gave Koreans reason to fear. Korea was under Japanese control for almost 50 years, and its culture and language were persecuted. As many as 500,000 Korean women were forced into sexual slavery in the infamous system of comfort women, and others experienced the horrors of Japanese experiments in Unit 731. Men were turned into slave labor for the Japanese war effort in World War II, and they died along with their masters. There were many Korean casualties at places like Guadalcanal, Tarawa, Iwo Jima, and Hiroshima. Japan's brutal rule over Korea before World War II is still the main source of friction between the two countries, but this mutual distrust and hatred really began with the Imjin War. After World War II was over, Korea was independent. Hooray! And then immediately occupied by American and Soviet troops, resulting in the current split between North and South Korea. The Korean War of 1950-53 was almost as devastating as the Imjin War, and left the land of the morning calm divided by a great scar, a fortified line drawn across the peninsula, the Korean DMZ. So after decades of suffering, Korea is split in two, 
an unnatural border that most Koreans despise, even if they understand why it exists. Korea is not supposed to be divided. The world is not supposed to be this way. For centuries, the Koreans have regarded themselves as one people. They're just now divided by Cold War circumstance and a century of repression. North Korea is a joke country, a loony dictatorship, mocked across the world, the go-to example of a nutbar dictatorship. In contrast, South Korea is one of the great success stories of the modern world, one of the world's most prosperous economies and countries, with major corporations like Samsung and Hyundai, with a thriving media industry that produces movies and TV and music that the entire world is enjoying. But for the Koreans, this division of their nation is an ongoing tragedy. Just another sad chapter in the history of the brave, resilient, unlucky Korean people always trapped between superpowers. And this tragedy stretches all the way back to the Imjin War. And even if Western historians don't remember it, the Koreans do. They remember the glory and the trauma, the pain and the victory. To you and me right now in the 21st century in the West, the Imjin War was a long time ago, far away, in a foreign country with an unusual culture. But for the Koreans, it wasn't that long ago. It happened on their soil. It was their war. And they remember. China, Japan, and Korea all remember the Imjin War differently. It influenced how all three countries viewed each other, especially Chinese and Korean hostility towards Japan. While this hostility has much more recent and extremely justified causes from before and during World War II, its roots are in the Imjin War. Chinese historians look at the Imjin War as a triumph, the rescue of a loyal ally and a preservation of the Chinese world order, but also evidence of a corrupt and weak government in the late Ming era. Most Chinese accounts focus on both the righteousness of the war and what they see as the bumbling of the generals and ministers. It's sometimes just called the rescue of Korea or the Korean emergency. But the Imjin War also echoes into the present day and China's fears about its security. Two times in China's history, in 1592 and in 1894, a foreign invader attacked China by way of Korea. And from the Chinese perspective, the Korean War of 1950 was a repeat of the Imjin War, when an invader came north to the Yalu, but a Chinese rescue mission drove them back. This time, the enemies weren't Japanese, of course, but they were UN forces, mostly US forces. So why does China still support North Korea? Well, Ming, Qing, Communist, one thing doesn't change. Threats to China come from invaders in Korea. That is China's legacy of the Imjin War. Japanese literature talked about the Imjin War differently. On the one hand, it was seen as Hideyoshi's folly, the great mistake that led to the downfall of his clan and the rise of the Tokugawa shogunate. This went side by side with tales of the glorious samurai, adventure stories of brave warriors fighting in a foreign land. The most famous hero was Kato Kiyomasa, especially his legendary tiger hunts and his leadership at Ulsan, as long as you ignore all the war crimey stuff he tended to do. Kato became one of the legendary samurai of the Japanese tradition. But in later centuries, the Imjin War came to justify Japan's ambitions for world power. It's no coincidence that the Japanese path to world power in the 19th and 20th centuries resembled Hideyoshi's grand dream of an Asian empire. This ended up, of course, in World War II, the very brief realization and ultimate destruction of Hideyoshi's dream. The most prominent Japanese relic of the Imjin War is, of course, the Mimizuka. 
Japan and Korea had a diplomatic dust-up back in the 1990s over the Mound of Noses. One more scar of the Imjin War that refuses to heal. But no one remembers the Imjin War more vividly than the Koreans. For obvious reasons, it was the most horrifying event in their entire history, and a lot of works focused on that. Korea to this day is still dotted with monuments and shrines from the Imjin War. Many of the Wajo fortresses survive as public exhibits. These fortresses that were literally carved out of the Korean earth. Another scar that refuses to heal. But Korea got something from the Imjin War. It got heroes. It got Shang Paul who fought the death at Busan, or Song Sang-yeon who told the Japanese it would be difficult to let them pass. Women like the defenders of Hangju who carried rocks to the walls in their skirts, or Nange who threw herself and a samurai to their deaths at Jinju, or great resistance leaders like the redcoat general Kwok Jayu, or the Buddhist leader Hu Jong, or the great Korean general Guan Yul. All these leaders and the resistance movements that rallied to defend their homeland were more than just a footnote in Korean history. The late historian Kim Habush has described the Imjin War as the birth of Korean nationalism. They saw themselves as a unified people, not just subjects of a dynasty or residents of a territory, for the first time. It was the invention of something called Korea. But the greatest hero of all, of course, was Yi Sun Shen. By my reckoning, one of the two or three greatest admirals in world history. He was even admired in Japan, where Japanese admirals during the Imperial Age would claim they had learned about sea power by studying their ancient enemy. Heihachiro Togo, the Japanese admiral who won the great victory at Tsushima in 1905 during the Russo-Japanese War, said openly that he might be equal to Horatio Nelson, but he would never be equal to Yi Sun Shen. Yi Sun Shen is the Korean national hero. He is on their money. He has an enormous statue in Seoul. There is another. There is a Korean naval museum in Seoul, a huge museum, which is basically the Yi Sun Shen Museum. Multiple other museums and shrines dot the southern Korean coast at Yosu, Sacheon, Okpo, Hansando, and Myeongyang. All the sites of his victories, including full-scale replicas of the turtle ships. You can buy turtle ship toys and small Yi Sun Shen statues as souvenirs all over Seoul. Military awards in both North and South Korea are named after him, as well as an entire class of South Korean warships. There was a very long-running, high-budget TV drama series in Korea, Immortal Admiral Yi Sun Shen, to explore his life and career. But to wrap up, I want to talk about two movies. Both of, the, both of these movies feature Yi Sun Shen, and both of them showcase the Battle of Myeongyang, the Korean Thermopylae, 13 vs. 300, his triumphant last stand in the Roaring Currents. In 2014, the war movie The Admiral was released in South Korean theaters, a big-budget flick starring veteran movie star Choi Min-sik as Yi Sun Shen. It was later released in the West as The Admiral Roaring Currents. This movie depicts the Battle of Myeongyang with Hollywood flair and surprisingly accurate technology and costumes with just a little bit of melodrama. It swept all the Korean awards, won Best Film at the Buell Film Awards, and to this day it's the most successful movie in Korean cinema. And guys, 
This movie slaps. It is awesome. I first saw it when I was stationed in Korea, and it sparked my interest in this conflict. It was one of the things that made me want to talk about unknown soldiers, talk about this war, do this podcast. This movie kicks butt, and I highly recommend it. But the other movie was released in 2005, and I think this movie says a lot about how the Imjin War is remembered today. This movie is called Heaven Soldiers. It starts in the modern day when a group of North and South Korean soldiers are transported back in time to the period before the Imjin War. They meet Yi Sun Shin as a young officer and are disappointed to find out that he's nothing like the hero from their histories. But the Koreans, both past and present, both North and South, have to work together to recover a nuclear warhead and fight off the Manchu on the northern borderlands. In the process, the North and South Koreans learn to work together and find their common national origins, and Yi Sun Shin learns the importance of duty and patriotism. The movie ends with the two main characters, one North and one South Korean, sending the nuke back to their own time. But they choose to stay with Yi Sun Shin. The last scene of the movie shows these two men, one North and one South Korean, on either side of the Admiral, on board his ship moments before the Battle of Myongyang. This was an obvious call for Koreans to remember their past, remember the common ties that bind them together, and reunify their broken nation. Showing Yi Sun Shin on his way to the great last stand in the strait, next to two symbols of their divided country that have come together, is a reminder that Koreans have done the impossible before, and they can do it again. This is what the Imjin War and Yi Sun Shin mean to Koreans both North and South. Triumph against the odds, victory against the impossible. Is it any wonder that Koreans honor a man who seemed to spit in the face of destiny? Is it any wonder that he is the symbol for some people for Korean unification, the thing that seems even more impossible every day? The impossible happened before, one autumn day in the waters off Korea in 1597. Maybe it can happen again. From the ruin of the Imjin War, Korea gained a nation and a hero. Koreans want their country to be reunited, and that hope survives in the memory of Yi Sun Shin. He is a symbol for two countries and one nation. They remember his last command. Do not let the men know of my death. Keep beating the drum. And as long as Koreans dream of reunifying their country, the drum keeps beating. And Yi Sun Shin lives. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? Well, guys, I'm glad you've come along with me through the story of the Imjin War. Dang, what a story, right? Now, I'm not surprised that more people don't know about this conflict. It's obscure. It happened in a weird time period in a distant part of the world. It's just not famous. It often gets folded, when it does get mentioned, into the broader story of the Japanese Age of War, rather than a story in its own right. It's important to the Koreans and the Japanese, a little bit to the Chinese, and basically no one else. But I think it should be much more important to everybody. So guys, what can we take away from the Imjin War? What are the big things we can say to wrap everything up? First off, 
The Imjin War was a much, much bigger conflict than world history gives it credit for. In terms of numbers, scale, and human lives lost, it was the largest and most devastating conflict of the 16th century, the biggest dust-up of the early gunpowder age, putting any European war in its shadow. The Imjin War happened at that merger between medieval and early modern warfare, when new technologies were being introduced all over the place. Military technology and its usage was a huge factor in this conflict. We saw how the Japanese musket, Korean and Chinese artillery, Korean warship design, all made the difference at critical moments in the war. Early Japanese success relied on their use of infantry firearms. Korean resistance relied on their superior warships. Chinese counterattacks revolved around their cannons. And each side adapted the other's technology throughout the conflict. We see the Koreans building muskets, and the Japanese adopting artillery and bigger fighting ships. Gunpowder technology evolved different ways in different countries, which had advantages and disadvantages. This goes to show something I've been talking about for a while. Military tech is not a one-track phenomenon. The enormous diversity and evolution of gunpowder weaponry is one of the Imjin War's defining features. But as we note, Technology was not a be-all, end-all. It was not a universal problem-solver. The Japanese use of infantry firearms did not enable them to win the war. Superior Korean warships did not stop them from having an idiot in charge of their navy and got getting it sunk at Chilchilyang. Chinese artillery was not going to crack open every fortress it touched, especially when the fortresses were as well-built and as well-defended as the Japanese Wajou. So the obvious question is, why did the Imjin War go the way it did if technology wasn't the overriding factor? The Japanese lost, but I think it's safe to say that no one came out of this conflict feeling like they'd won. What were the important military lessons from the Imjin War? The Japanese won early battles and still won a lot of face-to-face engagements down to the very end for a few reasons. Their soldiers and commanders were veterans with lots of experience. They had a warrior culture that emphasized ambition, aggressiveness, and competition, and they wielded new gunpowder technologies in very effective ways. Even later in the war, when the Japanese are clearly losing, they still win a lot of the land battles. Chinese and Korean soldiers, brave as they were, had a lot of trouble against Hideyoshi's samurai army. It was just a very combat-effective, dangerous force all around, even to the very end when it had one foot out the door. So from a pure win-loss standpoint on land, the Japanese come out on top. But of course, they didn't come out on top for two vital reasons. Logistics and sea power. I think logistics are so important that they're going to come back in one of the postscript short rounds next week. The logistics of the Engine War. I know it sounds boring, but I promise it's not. If anybody can make logistics exciting, I hope I can. (laughs) But the very size of Hideyoshi's army, long story short, made it almost impossible to support overland without sea transport. And as I've made very clear throughout this series, the Japanese never did control the sea for any length of time. By denying the sea to Japan, Yi Sunshin and the Korean Navy stopped both invasions in their tracks. The use of Korean sea power made the Japanese logistic problems impossible to solve, and this, more than any other factor, caused the Japanese defeat in the Imjin War. The resistance on land was super important, too, and the Koreans never could have kicked the Japanese out without the firepower, resources, and support of Ming China. 
Even if the Chinese didn't win every battle against the Japanese, the samurai always had a healthy respect for Chinese firepower. The Ming could send a huge army to Korea and keep it supplied. This was something the Japanese never could do, and that was telling. The Chinese were one of the critical elements in the Japanese defeat in the Imjin War. But the bulk of the fighting and the bulk of the suffering were done by the Koreans. After the shock of the Samurai Blitzkrieg faded, a Korean people that had been at peace for two centuries found their courage and fought back heroically. The guerrilla resistance pinned the Japanese down, and heroic Korean resistance at cities like Jinju and Hangju kept their country from disaster. The Ming might have been the ones to provide the main force on land eventually, but the Samurai Blitzkrieg had already been stopped in 1592 by the Koreans before the Chinese ever got there. So that's why the Japanese lost, and the Chinese and Koreans did win, even if they did not have a good time in the process. But my final point about this war was the theme I pushed throughout the series, and this is its humanity. One of my key objectives in telling the story of the Imjin War was showing how this was a common human experience. That's why I began every episode with a vignette, a short little story, to show how a lot of the human stories of this conflict bear so much resemblance to other conflicts. History doesn't repeat itself, but we recognize common experiences, common themes. There are different cultures and religions and philosophies and beliefs, but there's still a fundamental commonality underneath all of it. Real stories with real people, people doing people things. I focused a lot on what this war meant to the Chinese, the Japanese, and especially the Koreans. Because even if it wasn't important to us, it was important to them. When we understand why things matter to other people, we can see more clearly why they matter to us. I wanted to talk about this war because it was unfamiliar. There are so many stories we've heard time and again, you know, American Revolution, Civil War, World Wars. But when there's a story you haven't heard, I think you're able to get more from it. Draw parallels. Look at things in a different light. It's the reason I focus on unknown soldiers. Unknown soldiers are important because they show the diversity of the human experience, but they also show the similarities, the echoes, the parallels. It's true that I focus on war, that's my specialty, but history is the study of humanity. And I keep being reminded that there are more things that make us alike than make us different. These three people from three Asian countries, 400 plus years ago, a time and a place distant from our own, were human. Some were brave, some were cowards. Some were jealous and scheming, some were dignified and honorable. And even the honorable ones showed weakness, the jealous ones could be selfless. They had visions of glory, and they cried when their cities were destroyed. They fought for selfish reasons or to save their families. They succumbed to anger, greed, and overconfidence and despair. They experienced triumph and joy. They grieved their families, and they wanted to go home. And to each one of them, their story mattered. It was the only story that mattered. As the Buddhist monk Kainan said, one day became the rest of their lives. They were just like you and me, alien to us in space and time. The people who experienced the Imjin War are us. They mattered, even if we never knew their names, even if they're unknown soldiers. 
Thank you all so, so much for coming on campaign with me this past month. All I ask for are your listens, and if you want your feedback, please spread the word about this podcast, especially if someone doesn't understand why they should care. Because as we all know, you should care, and I'm going to tell you why. I will have all my sources on my website, along with my maps and some other images at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. You can also find me on Facebook or on Twitter at UNKSoldiersPod, or email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. Ask me questions. Tell me what you thought. Tell me what you want to hear about next. I will respond in record time. But we are not quite done with the MGen War. I have a postscript to this story that I think you will like. Because I did the math. Let's get some gritty details about food, transport, supply, and movement, and figure out why exactly the Japanese lost the Imjin War. I've made this assertion several times. The Japanese lost because they couldn't supply their troops. Well, why couldn't they? Let's find out. Coming next week, it'll be the logistics of the Imjin War. And then we're back to our regularly scheduled full-length episodes for a few weeks before we're going to cap off the season with the final series beginning in April, because we're going to Russia. So tune in on Monday for Logistics of the MGen War, same place, same time, next week on Unknown Soldiers. <laughs>